Sup, Mill Sunday School. Give yourself a big hand for being here on time. You guys, I love you guys that show up on time. There's all these slackers that come in late. They're cool too, but you guys are really cool. I really like you guys. I really do. Why don't you turn into your Bibles this morning? We're going to look at a passage that I just think is really, really cool. It's, it's in Luke 4. It's in Luke 4. We're going to look at that. Wasn't the mill cool on Friday? Raise your hand if you were at the mill on Friday. Probably all of you were. It was the sweetest barbecue that I've ever been at because it was just so cool. It was outside, beautiful weather. You know the real reason why we did that? Because there was, yeah, part of the, just, just between you and me, the, the parking lot that's in between New Life and Pikes Peak is actually owned by Pikes Peak. And so we use that parking lot every single week. And all we give them in return is one day that they get to have their graduation here. But it just so happens that it's on a Friday, so the mill doesn't get to meet. So that's the real reason. So when life hands you lemons, we make lemonade. And so that's what we did. That's why we had a barbecue. That's why we were packed into the tent with, like, the stadium bleacher seatings because we were making lemonade, figuratively. <laughs> All right, Luke, uh, Luke 4, starting in verse, uh, we're going to look at 16. Imagine yourself, if you would like to close your eyes, if you're still walking around, don't close your eyes, but imagine yourself in Israel around 30 AD. It's hot. It's a Saturday because that's a Sabbath day, and you're sitting down. Maybe it's a Saturday morning. It's hot already because it's the Middle East. You're sitting there, maybe on the ground, maybe on like a little rug thing. Maybe there's something over you, like a thatched roof or something like that. That's the kind of synagogue where people kind of met. Maybe it was like a really nice synagogue that had brick buildings. So just imagine yourself in any one of those things. Every single Saturday on the Sabbath, a scroll was read. Part of the Old Testament was read. And this is the story of Jesus coming to Nazareth and reading part of the scroll. I think it's really, really cool. So if you're still closing your eyes, that's cool. But Jesus went to Nazareth. Luke 4:16. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on a Sabbath day, he went up to the synagogue as it was custom. So just a normal day. He's just chilling, as it was custom. Remember how we talked about how the reading the Bible is sometimes like playing with the jack-in-the-box? Everybody say, da 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 Yeah, that's right. So you're, you're, you're playing with it, you're reading the Bible, and you're just reading and reading, you're kind of turning the jack-in-the-box thing, and you're like, wow, this is okay, this is honestly a little boring, blah, 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 and then, bam, from out of the book itself, not a jack, but like just God's word just touches you, and you're like, wow, that's really cool, that's what's about to happen right here, just to give you a little heads up. So on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as it was custom, he stood up and read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. So imagine yourself sitting there and just reading the scroll like usual every single Saturday. And it says this in the scroll of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So Jesus is reading this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began teaching them, saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. 
wouldn't that be sweet? That the scroll written a long time ago in the Old Testament, thousands of years before Jesus stood in the synagogue and, and read this, said, even though this was written a thousand years ago, today, right now, it's being fulfilled in your hearing. Talk about the jack coming out of the box. That's pretty sweet. Let's pray. God, we just welcome you in here today. Jesus, using the analogy of the jack in the box, God, would you bring something to us, to our hearts, to our minds? Just surprise us with your knowledge right now in the Mill Sunday School. God, we're here. We're willing. We're ready to learn from you, Jesus. And so we just say that to you, every one of us personally. God, we're here ready to learn from you. And everybody shouted, Amen. Somebody did. That's cool. The Mill Sunday School is such a cool place. All of you here had to kind of pay a price to be here this morning. And it's early. I realize that. For most of us in here, it's really early. For some of us, Sunday is the only day that we have to sleep in. I was talking to a few of you that were up last night until 3 a.m. Anybody else up till 3 a.m. last night? Yeah, I'm always surprised. I went to bed at 9 because I'm married. And I have a wife now. And that's what we do. We just go to bed early. We woke up naturally at 6.30 a.m. <laughs> that should be funny to you. Um, yeah, it just happens. Some, something happens when you get married. You just start going to sleep earlier and waking up earlier. It's just like your parents, you know. Anyways, there's a price that had to be paid this morning for you to be here. And I really believe that. I'm not just joking around and saying, oh, you had to get up early. That's so horrible. No, for real. There's a price to be paid for learning, for knowledge. And I tempt you with the free food to get you here, but I know that's not enough. There's a real price that has to be paid to learn. And as Christians, I think we are called to learn about our God. We're called to learn about this book like we're doing all this month. We're called to just learn about God's ways. I think sometimes as Christians, we're a little lazy. Everybody say, ooh. Sometimes we're a little lazy. We, we often will pray for things, and praying is really good. For instance, to give you an analogy, we'll pray for the people at the Supreme Court Justice. We'll be like, God, would you touch the Supreme Court Justices and lead some of them to the Lord, help them make Christian decisions that we would make? And we pray those prayers. Those prayers are good. Those prayers are holy. But I think sometimes God calls us to be the Supreme Court Justices. Don't you think? But that takes a lot of work. You know how many schools, it, how many years of school it takes to be a Supreme Court Justice? I don't even know. I'm going to throw out the number of like college and then master's degree, and then you have to do your bar exams and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to guess like just throw out a number, eight years of college. Does anybody like college a whole lot? like me. I mean, I just love school. I love learning. That's why I'm up here teaching, just because I like to learn and then give it back to you. But there is a price to be paid. Everybody say, there's a price to be paid. Yeah, to, to learn. And so the Mill Sunday School, you guys are here because you want to learn. And so I'm just excited about that. I thank you all for being here, for paying the price to be able to learn more about the Bible, and not just for your own self, but to be able to take your faith, to know more about your faith, Bring it to others. If someone asks you a question, especially this month, Bible conundrums, people come up to you all the time. Uh, maybe not all the time. They come up to me all the time and say, hey, Joe, what do you think about this weird passage? And sometimes they're non-believers really wanting to know. It's like, did Jesus really say this? And so this month, we're learning about Bible conundrums. You all are praying the price because you all can handle it. This is the Mill Sunday School. Turn to your neighbor and say, I can handle it. Yeah, this is the Mill Sunday School. I know you can. We don't cut corners in here. We go right into it. And this morning, we're talking about 
infallibility, inerrancy, and inspiration. Someone stole my notes. I had notes up here. I mean, not my. Can I borrow that note right there? Not to take it away from me. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I just stole somebody's notes. Thank you again. Inspiration, infallibility, and in, and inerrancy. These are words that are big words. They're important words. Let me just read, for instance, the New Life Church statement of faith about the Bible. If you go online to newlifechurch.org, or if you go to the guest center and say, hey, what do you guys believe around here? They'll probably hand you a piece of paper. It has like 10 or 12 different things about our beliefs. One of those things, those paragraphs, is about the Bible. Here's what we, as, as New Life Church, um, as I'm a pastor at New Life Church, here's what I hold to about the Bible. New Life Church statement about the Bible. The Holy Bible is the only, uh, the Holy Bible and only the Bible is the authoritative word of God. It alone is the final authority for determining all doctrinal truths. In its original writing, the Bible is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. And then it lists some, some verses, Proverbs 35, Romans 16, 25, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 2 Peter 1, 20, to say that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. It's those three words, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. What in the world do those words mean? That is why you all are here this morning, to learn about those three very important words. The first word, inspired, it's probably the easiest of the words. Inspired just means influenced by divinity, influenced by God. So if you're writing notes, and and as the most Sunday school, lots of you like to write notes because you're in here to learn. And so I, I highly encourage you to write down notes. That's why I give you these pieces of paper. I even put a pen on every table, just in case you didn't even bring a pen. You're ready to go. Inspired is influenced by divinity. And I think a lot of people that aren't even Christians will say, oh yeah, the Bible is somewhat inspired. They'll say, oh yeah, it's definitely influenced by divinity. It's definitely a book of God. And someone that's not a Christian might say, oh, well, the works of the Hindus and the Quran and other such books are also influenced by spirituality. But the Bible, to us as Christians, is really the only book that we could hold up and say, this for sure is inspired. This is the authoritative word of God. So inspired just means influenced by the divinity, influenced by God. We might use the analogy that God's hand was upon those that wrote the Bible. I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we said that God's hand actually wrote the Bible. No, real people in history wrote the Bible, but God's hand was upon them writing it, upon their mind and their hand as they wrote it. And so that's what we hold to, that the Bible is inspired. Word number two, inerrant. Everybody say, this is a big one. Now, I'm even going to crack out the markers and the board and stuff like that for this one because it's a big deal. Inerrant is a word that lots of different people have lots of different opinions about. And so some people hear the word inerrant and they'll immediately think something, uh, something along the lines of, um, for instance, inerrant. Let's just write it down and say what it means. Dang it. Don't these pins ever work? Ah, there we go. It literally means, what do you think it means? You know what it means. Yeah, without error, obviously. I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you. I know I can't. I know you're the middle Sunday school. You can handle it. I looked at dictionary.com 
by the way, the only dictionary worth looking at. I mean, honestly, why would you pull a book off a shelf when you can just type it in? Let's be real. Dictionary.com, the best dictionary to ever hit the face of the earth. Dictionary.com means literally free from error, and then they give the word, they, they, they use this, what's this called? A, a colon, semicolon? A semicolon, and then they say infallible. So in the dictionary.com, inerrant, they say, is a synonym for infallible. And as Christians and as believers, and, and these are very important words, we have to say, yeah, that's kind of true. Inerrant and infallible are very similar words. However, lots of people use the term inerrant to, to mean something that you and I might disagree on. That they'll say uh, that it means without error, and, and then they'll define. They'll say, oh, it means without error, meaning that the Bible is totally without any exaggeration in it. They'll say, oh, the Bible is all literal. The Bible is in every little detail, every little um, thing of history, or every little scientific fact, or every little, there's absolutely no inconsistencies. The Bible is without error, 100%. This, it's just totally, totally perfect. Every single word in English is meant to be there the way it is now. Have you heard people talk like that? Some of you may, may kind of hold to that or have never really thought about it before. But this is the Mill Sunday School. You can handle it. And so we're going to talk about the term inerrant. We're going to talk about the Bible. And I guess we're going to look at it in a critical manner. Instead of just opening it up, um, like next month, we're going to open it up and study the parables of Jesus. How cool is that? But this month, we're looking critically at the Bible and saying, what do these terms inerrant and infallible really mean? What do we really believe about the words that are on this page? And so here we go. Inerrant. Um, someone gave me this question. Remember when we did some questions, Bible conundrum questions? Look at your neighbor and say, what, what's going on? <laughs> That's what you look like. You're like, some of you may not have been there. I'll give you credit. Some of you were here about two weeks ago when we wrote down just questions, conundrums, difficult passages in the Bible. And someone wrote this down, and I just I can't stop laughing because it's so good. Uh, and you might be in here and laugh with me too. It says Judges 15, 4 through 5. Judges 15, 4 through 5. Samson ties the tails of 300 foxes, fastening a torch to each one. Is this possible? How did he catch them? How did he tie them together without being bit to death? <laughs> I just picture it. It's so funny to me. Uh, but then the, the real question, it looks like a guy's handwriting. The real question this guy asks is, is it possible that the Bible may exaggerate the truth at times? That's kind of a serious question. And I don't want, I don't know anything about Samson tying tails of 300 foxes together. I mean, actually, I think it's possible. Uh, I, I, think, I don't know if he actually tied the tail itself. I don't know if that's actually possible. Maybe he used a rope and then tied. I mean, getting 300 foxes would be a chore, but maybe he had some buddies to help him. I don't know. Um, but there's obviously passages in the Bible that are meant to be exaggerations. Deuteronomy 1.28, the cities are great and walled up to heaven. Everybody say, is that literal? I don't think so. Everyone, he's talking about some soldiers here in Judges 2016. Everyone could sling a stone, like David and Goliath. Like, everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Everybody say, that's really good. <laughs> Wish I could do that. Um, that may be an exaggeration. I would say it is. And then, and here's some words of Jesus. I think this is clearly uh, an exaggeration, or in literature, it's called a hyperbole, because there's got to be different words for those special artsy people. 
kidding. These are the words of Jesus in Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me, he must first hate his father and mother. That's a pretty, that's like, whoa, that's kind of a Bible conundrum, don't you think? And someone actually put that in here as, as one of their questions. Like, what's Jesus talking about? I think it's talking about in your comparison to your love for Jesus, you must give up some of the things of your parents. Sometimes you must disobey your parents in order to follow Jesus. If your parents aren't Christians, for instance, and they don't want you reading the Bible, I would say that may be one time, like all of you in here are post-college or college, um, if your parents don't like you being a Christian, don't like you reading the Bible, I would say that's a time when it's okay to disobey them and to not to hate them, but to, to hate them in, in your comparison to your love for Jesus. And so I think that's an exaggeration, a hyperbole, not meant to be um, taken literally. And then the final one, I just laugh at this one too. It's, it's actually Jesus' words. He's talking to Pharisees and he's comparing um, them like not sinning a little bit, but then sinning a whole bunch. And he says, you blind guides, you strain out a fly, but swallow a camel. It's, it's obviously exaggeration, don't you think? I mean, maybe not. Maybe it's literal. I, I, yeah, I could see some of you doing that. And so some people might, just to talk about the word inerrancy, some people might say inerrancy means um, that the Bible is totally literal. There's no errors. There's no exaggerations. There's no even tiny little errors. And that, as New Life Church, as I'm a pastor of New Life Church, that's not what we mean by the term inerrant. We don't believe that it's totally literal because I just read a lot of passages that can't be taken literally. And so we need to, last time we talked about hermeneutics and exegesis, that there's truth in this word. And what we mean when we say that the Bible is inerrant, we say that it's without error in teaching truth. That you, can, you won't, even if you find some little thing that's really weird, and you're like, maybe this is an error, and I use my, uh, what is this, rabbit ear things, quotation marks. I don't even know why I do that. I just, I've seen it done, and I like to do it. Um, that we, we might see some sort of thing that looks like an error or an inconsistency or, or a conundrum. And we might, um, as Christians, we don't throw the Bible in the trash because we see one of these little errors or inconsistencies. And we're gonna, I'm going to show you some more conundrums today that will be fun. I've also heard um, people use the term inerrant, and I don't know where they get this from, but there's actually quite a few people in, in different congregations that say the term inerrant means the King James Version of the Bible. I, I now have a new rule. I, I developed this rule uh, like in my college days. Um, but the rule now is never trust anyone on a Greyhound bus. <laughs> uh, I was riding from Utah to, to Florida. Everybody go, wow. Utah to Florida, literally on the Greyhound bus, takes three 24-hour days, and so you're on the bus all day, and then all night, and then all day, and all night. I don't know why I did it. I was in college. Uh, some of you are in college, probably thinking like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I guess the reason why I did it was a flight. I was going to see my buddy in Florida for the summer and chill with him. Uh, I was, the flight was 900 bucks for the round trip from uh, Salt Lake City to Tallahassee, Florida. That's a lot of money. Uh, I don't know why it was so much at that time. But the Greyhound bus, they were doing the summer special, so it was only 90 bucks for the round-trip tickets all the way from Utah to Florida. And so I was like, dibs, I'm not doing nothing. <laughs> and, uh, and it turned out to be quite, a, quite an adventure. 
But I was sitting next to this, by like the second leg of the trip, I think from Dallas to, or Amarillo to Dallas, I can't remember. I was sitting next to this older lady that was, that was, in, that was a Christian, but was extremely charismatic. And it was a time in my life when I wasn't charismatic. The only thing I knew about tongues and prophecy and interpretations of tongues, the only thing that I had ever been taught was that all that stuff ended when the Bible was finished being written. And so that was just my idea. I was like, yeah, that's, that's just what I think. So I was sitting next to this lady that was just telling me all this real, actually kind of cool stuff about tongues and prophecy. And I was like, wow, this is, I've never heard this before. Um, and so I was kind of, kind of getting into the conversation a little bit. And then she started talking about the King James Version of the Bible and how that's the only version of the Bible that should be written. And she said, if you read any other version of the Bible, you're probably going to hell. And I was like, so I had, I had my NIV in my backpack. I kind of just like pushed it under a little bit more. And so she, really, she believed, and she used the word inerrant to mean that the King James Version is the only version that should be used. And the only inerrant version is the King James Version of the Bible. As we talk about translations uh, in the notes, we'll get to the King James Version and why. I'll give you two reasons why I don't like it as my favorite version. One just happens to be the these and thous, and it's hard to read. The other is more foundational and more important as to why I don't like the King James Version. But there's all these different definitions of what inerrancy means. It's because there's so many definitions of one word, I don't really like the word. I like that they, I believe that the Bible is inerrant, but I don't like the term inerrant because lots of different people are just confused by what you mean when you say inerrant. Most people would say, like, what do you mean by inerrant? They would say, oh, it means without error. But then I also mean that, it, that only the King James Version is inerrant. Or they'll say, well, I mean inerrant in that it doesn't have any kind of exaggeration. It's all to be taken literally, so on and so forth. As New Life Church, we would say it does not err in teaching truth. So you could write down that. You could say without error, does not err in teaching truth. What about the term infallibility? The term infallibility, I'll put it up here because it's fun. In, oh wait, I think there's just one in, huh? I'm a bad speller. What does infallibility mean literally? Dang it. Everybody say, what a clown. Is that right? So I don't know why. I think you, I, you stop learning how to spell when you're like in fifth grade. And I stopped. And I, so I, I, I never really got it. I'm sorry. Infallibility. What does it mean literally? Does anyone know? You can shout it out. This is the Mill Sunday School. You know? No one really knows. I'll write it down for you. Without falseness. Without falseness is is the uh, the, the literal translation. The uh, dictionary.com, the only dictionary you'll ever need, says absolutely trustworthy or sure. And I, I like this term a lot. I don't think that many people are confused about th what this term means. And it means very similar to inerrancy. It just means that without falseness, that the Bible does not err in teaching what is true. You're not going to read the Bible and read a bunch of false things. You're not going to get a false idea from reading the Bible. You're going to get truth. The big idea that Jesus came down to die for the sins of the world. That, that in the Old Testament, um, they needed someone. In the New Testament, Jesus came and fulfilled all of the Old Testament is the big idea. You're not going to get falseness from reading the Bible. You're going to get truth. Isn't that cool? 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. And so, the New Life Church definition also includes something about the authoritative word of God. It alone is the final authority for determining all doctrine of truth. In its original language, the Bible is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. What is the original writing thing? In its original writing, the Bible is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. In its original writing. What does that mean? Yeah, the original writing is literally the piece of paper that Paul himself, for instance, let's just talk about the book of Corinthians. The original writing is literally the piece of paper or uh, papyrus or sheepskin or goat intestine. (laughs) I mean, you realize that they didn't have paper factories back then. You kind of had to make your own paper out of what you could. So some of those gross things were used. Um, They took a piece of paper and and either scratched on it and then put ink on, on the scratches or just put ink on it if it was a piece of papyrus. And so the original piece of paper that Paul wrote his letter to, let's just say, the Corinthian church is the original document. Do we have that original document? No, everybody said that's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous that we could have that piece of paper. A, it would be really old, and it would, it would look probably like this piece of paper that's on the cover of your skillet. I mean, that that is the oldest manuscript that we have for the book of John. It's cut off a little bit, but that's it. That's what we have. There's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words on that page. That's one of the uh, one of the ancient, one of the most oldest, most oldest, who is this up here, uh, examples of the manuscripts that we have from the book of John. Just kind of a cool piece of paper that we found in history. But we will never have the original documents because even if we did, would we believe it? No, there's no way of really proving. I mean, even if we had fingerprints on it, we would dig up Paul's body. I mean, this is a little gross. To try to find the fingerprints of Paul. And what's there? Even if we had Paul's body, there's no fingerprints left. It's been 2,000 years. I'd be happy if there's a bone in the, in the tomb after 2,000 years. And so there's no way we can ever have the original documents. And even if we did, it would require faith in order to have it. Just a, a balloon just descended. That was pretty cool. <laughs> Anyways, man, I'm so distracted. I was like, wow, look at that. There's a balloon descending. It came out of the ceiling. <laughs> oh, man. This is the most Sunday school. A great place to start your day. Uh, so we will never have the original documents. So what's so important? Why do we talk about having these original documents? Because, ladies and gentlemen, it just so happens that as the manuscripts were passed along, that tiny little um, differences crept in. Tiny little differences crept in. And these differences, emphasis on the word tiny. Tiny little differences crept in. If you look at your Bible, open up the Bible to pr- probably any page you want. Just I'm just going to open it here. I turn to Acts 7, just randomly. Um, if you open up the Bible, there's usually at the bottom of, of uh, the page, even, even like the Bibles that are on your, your tables, have little notes. Some of them say, some early manuscripts say this or that. The Septuagint says this or that. Some, some One manuscript says this or that. These are the notes. And it's usually like every five to ten pages will have one of these little notes. There's one on this page. It says, some early manuscripts say the house of, of Jacob. What is that referring to? Well, there's a little letter, and it points back up to um, Acts 7, uh, 46, just for example that this verse says 
uh, what does it say? Who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the house of God. But then it says that some manuscripts, some early manuscripts say the house of Jacob. And so it could read that, that, that the Lord might provide a dwelling place for the God of the house of Jacob. And so in some manuscripts is this word house. In some manuscripts, the word house is not there. Is that a big deal? I don't really think so. It doesn't seem like a big deal to me. I mean, how many times is the phrase house of Jacob used in the Bible? And so you're coming, if you're, pretend you're, you're, an old, you're a New Testament scribe and you're sitting down writing and, and taking one book and uh, making it into another book because you realize back then there wasn't any photocopiers, no, no MySpace. You couldn't just post it on the web. They, I mean, it was brutal back then. Uh, to have a book would be a big deal. And so you wanted to make a copy of that book. How would you make a copy? By hand. That's a pretty big deal. I don't know about you, but if I had a copy of the Bible by hand, I'd probably freak out and complain about it. So why don't we just use this copy machine? <laughs> um, so in this, I say all that to say that that the, in, in like five or six pages of the Bible in the, surrounding this Acts chapter 7, there's no other manuscripts notes. That's the only one. And so what could have happened was that a scribe writing that down could have just added accidentally the word house into the house of Jacob because that was a common phrase. And then he would have looked back up and, and not caught his mistake. And so that mistake was added on and then, and then continued to be transcribed as that book was passed on. Or sometimes we have uh, things that were in the margin. So if you're, read, if you're reading the text and it, there's a margin that says the house of Jacob, you might, if you're a scribe, you might include that word into the Bible. And so no one is trying to hide this from you. No one is trying to say, oh, that we only have one perfect manuscript of the Bible. Everyone, look, if you actually look at the Bible, it's, it's, no one's trying to hide it from you. It's right here in the text. It says some manuscripts say the house of Jacob instead of just instead of the place of God for the God of Jacob. Is that a big deal, that the word house is in one and not in the other? Is that going to change your faith in Jesus Christ, that he came and died for you? Everybody say, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to. It's not going to harm me that much. And in fact, in five pages of a book that's more than, I guess it's right around 2,000 years old, for there only to be one tiny little manuscript, um, edition like that in five pages, I'm like, wow, my goodness, that's amazing that a book this old would only have one little thing like that in one on one little page. That's amazing. And the only thing it is is the word house. And so people that um, look at the Bible and, and, and try to figure out which, if the house should be in there or not, they look at two different things. They look at which manuscript is older. If they have a really old manuscript that says house and a really new manuscript that doesn't say house, then the word house would be in there because they like the older ones better because it's more closer to the original, to the original. And then sometimes they, they will usually take the shorter version. And this may be confusing to you. Um, so that the house, the word house is not in there. Probably maybe for this example that, that we would take the shorter of the two <coughs> wordings because most people are like me and like everybody else. We want to make sense of things. And so we might add things to make more sense of the passage. It would be totally wrong to take away from the passage. But to add to the passage as manuscript writers, 
is, is more likely the way to go instead of just taking random passages out or taking words out. We want to make it more, more sense out of the writing. Is this new to some of you guys in here? When I first learned about this, it was extremely challenging to me. I was like, wow, so the Bible, so some, some words, and they're just tiny. I mean, the word house, that's a tiny little thing. It's not going to change your faith. But as, as I first started learning about this, I was like, wow, this is really hard to me. This is uh, confusing to me. And I remember people in, in college that came up and said, oh, I don't believe in the Bible because there's so many inconsistencies. And I would say, there's no inconsistencies. The Bible's perfect. And we would just kind of go back and forth without any example. They were non-Christians. I was a Christian. And they would say, I don't believe in the Bible because there's so many inconsistencies. But nowadays, if someone said that, I would say, well, first off, show me one. And they may show me this one and say, oh, well, some manuscripts have the word house. Some manuscripts don't have the word house. I would say, who cares? This book is 2,000 years old. And on five pages, that's the only addition to the manuscript, the word house, house of Jacob. That doesn't change anything. Come on, let's get real. This book is amazing. It's, it's, handed, it's been truth handed down throughout 2,000 years. The New Testament, the Old Testament's even older than that. And it's amazing. It's so awesome. Don't you think? Let me draw a picture for you to show you how awesome this is. This, where's my sweet red marker? This, my friends, because my drawing is so good. See that? Perfect circle. With a handle on it. This is a mirror. You see it? You're like holding a mirror, looking at yourself. But the Bible is like, this is just an analogy, just for fun, is like a mirror that we use to like look around a corner. So if I wanted to look back here, I could, and I couldn't see around it, I would take a mirror and like shine it around so I could see there's a drum set back there. Some of you could see that underneath. So I'd take a mirror and I would look at the drum set. But as the Bible, what we do is we read the Bible, we study the Bible, we get into the Bible because it reflects God himself. Do we worship this book? No, that's silly. We don't worship a book. We don't worship this uh, leather and these black uh, black words and letters on a white page. We don't worship that. We worship God himself. And so even if this is like maybe a tiny little scratch in the mirror, do you see that from where you're sitting? Probably not because it's so small. Uh, this is like, let's just say this is toothpaste on the mirror. Uh, there's a lot of toothpaste on my mirror at home. My wife doesn't like that too much, but I really like to brush my teeth and get crazy with it. Um, so there's, you know, there's toothpaste everywhere. <laughs> it's true. That's how I do it. Um, so if, if we're looking at this mirror that's old and has a tiny little scratch on it that has maybe some toothpaste on it, we don't throw the mirror in the trash. We would say we still need the mirror to look around this corner and to see the God that we worship, because we can't see God face to face. We're living on the earth. We need faith. But the Bible is the best example, the best thing that we have to look and see who God is, his ways, his, uh, just his majesty. And so there's a verse that says something like that. It's, it's not talking about the Bible, but just about knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it just, it, Paul's talking about just knowledge. And he says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then, like when we die and get to heaven, then we shall see face to face. I, I, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, 
even as I am fully known. That on this earth, right now, we can't know fully. We can't know God face to face. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says that no one could see God face to face and live. You would die. Remember the story of Moses seeing God, uh, not God's face, but God's, like, backside as he walked. He, like, was walking and then covered the hole where Moses was sitting. And then it's in the Bible. Read it. It's a pretty cool story. And then walked past Moses and then took his hand off so that Moses could see the back of God's glory. That's how Moses was able to see God. That's, that's like, not even face-to-face. That's the full glory that we can understand unless we would die because it's God. And we would just, like, our mind would, like, blow up. And that's my interpretation of what would happen. But we can't handle it. But we will know fully. But the best example, the best thing that we have to know God is this book. To use the analogy of the mirror, we don't throw the mirror in the trash because it has a little scratch on it. Because the dumb word house is in one manuscript and not in another manuscript. We say, wow, this is still God's truth. Let me give you another example um, of, a, of a passage. 2 Corinthians um, 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Then verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Have you heard that band before? We were just listening to it, by the way. That's where they got their title, that we have this treasure, the treasure of the knowledge of the all-surpassing glory of God in the face of Christ in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You know what a clay jar of clay is? It's pretty literally a jar of clay. <laughs> that if you take a jar, I mean, if, imagine if you didn't have glass yet, if glass was really expensive, and all you had to carry around water was a jar of clay. What if you accidentally dropped it or somebody kicked it? What would happen to it? It would break and just it would bust, and, it, and, and, and they don't last very long. I mean, if you had a jar of clay, I'm just guessing that if it lasted like five years, you'd be like, man, this, this jar of clay has been good to me. It's lasted five years. That's pretty cool. And so the analogy here that's being used is we have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ in just little little containers, little jars of clay to show that this power is not from us, it's from God. And I think that's a pretty cool analogy, don't you think? That even though sometimes church leaders or even you and I, when we're witnessing to our friends, they could say, well, wait a minute. Didn't I see you a couple years ago doing this or that bad thing? And you're like, yeah, I'm not perfect. Listen, I'm not perfect, but God is inside of me, and his ways are perfect. And so just like the Bible, we could say, oh, yeah, the Bible may not be, um, I, I, I hesitate to say it's not a perfect book, but it's not a perfect book in that there's, there's, I mean, is the word house in there, or is it not in there? What do we do? I don't know. I mean, the NIV, NIV doesn't have it in there, but then it includes it in its manuscripts. Maybe it should be included, and then in some manuscripts it should say the house is not included. That's like, that's, that makes it not perfect. And so um, it's still the best thing we have to know God. That's a good point, don't you think? Everybody say, I'm not looking at the balloon. I can't stop looking at it. It's just like hovering. It's so cool. I mean, where's it going to go next? It's like in fifth grade when uh, the windows are open because it's before AC was invented. <laughs> And uh, a bee, a bee would fly into the classroom. <laughs> it would just be pandemonium for like ten minutes. It's just like ah! And so it's just, it's just like that. Only it's a balloon, not a bee. So everybody say, I'm really not looking at it. 
All right, this, this is going to be fun. Let's talk about different translations. Um, there's the NIV, the KJV, the uh, Message, Living Version. Uh, there's lots and lots and lots <laughs> of different... <laughs> had to do it. There's lots and lots of translations of the Bible. John, take care of that. Just take it outside and kill it. That's in the trash. It's going to come back, though. It'll come back. I know it will. Like, lift up the trash can. Uh, why, is, why is that so fun? All right, I'm going to put up a couple different translations up here and talk about them. Does that sound like fun to you, to know what the differences are in the translations? I know. I know that's why you're here. It's fun. And so, it's fun to me. Um, probably most of you um, have this version it. can't see that. The N-I-V. What does that stand for? Do you know? The New International Version. The New International Version is sort of a, um, don't, don't get my wording wrong, it is not a paraphrase, but it is a phrase by phrase. They'll take a sentence and break it down to a couple phrases, like three words or four words, and that's a phrase, and they'll take that little phrase from the Greek, from the original Greek, from the original Hebrew, and there's passages of the Old Testament that are actually Aramaic, so three original languages of the, the book of the Bible. And so they'll take a little phrase and translate that into um, sentence fragments. Maybe I shouldn't use the word phrase, because the NIV is not a paraphrase. It's just uh, sentence fragment by sentence fragment. And so maybe I'll put that if you're writing notes down. Sentence fragment by sentence fragment. That's the NIV. It came out in, uh, if you look at it, it says 1973 copyright. came out in 1973 as a really sweet version that was really, really needed at the time. Because all, almost everyone before 1973, what version did they have in the United States? What was so popular? Now, all your parents had was the KJV. I might come back to this. I'll come back to this one. Wait, K, King James version of the Bible. But first I want to talk about the N-A-S-B. What's that stand for? Yeah, it stands for the New American Bible. It stands for the New American Standard New American Standard Bible. And this version is probably, in the English, the most, uh, this is the most literal word for word translation that we have. And so, you might be sitting there thinking, isn't word for word better than sentence fragment for sentence fragment? Some of you might say, yeah. How many of you carry the NASB? Some of you do? Yeah. I think it's a great version. I just like the NIV better because the NIV reads a little better. You realize that there's no... Um, some of you know different languages, right? How many of you know a different language? bilingual or just like maybe you're learning Spanish as a second language or something like that, you know that you almost there's subtleties in translation. So if one person said something in Spanish and you had two translators, one might say this uh, really close to the translation, and one might say this really close to the translation. But both translations are different. Which one's better? I don't know. I mean, 
you have to look at it and say, well, what's your criteria for the translation? The NASB is word for word, extremely literal. And so that makes it, because it's translated from the Greek, for instance, in the New Testament, the order of the words in Greek, when I had to study Greek, when I was taking my seminary classes, it was very hard for me because the order of words was very very different than in English. We usually say uh, noun, the dog, verb, ate, and then what is the thing? Participle? Ate, food, direct object. There it is. That's how it goes in uh, English. But in Greek, the, wor- the words have their own endings, and so they're all jumbled up. So I say all that to say if you're reading the NASB, it's usually a much harder translation to read for you. Whereas the NIV, in comparison, is probably a much easier version for you to read, and then probably, because it's easier to read, it's easier to understand for you. And so I like the NIV better, and one of the main reasons is because most of you, raise your hand if you like the NIV the best, if that's what's the version you carry. Yeah, it's the, it's, it's the version that everybody has around here, and so it's in the version that I carry, so I like it the best. All right, KJV. No, let's go, let's do, let's do these two first. The message, not to be confused with uh, the living. The message and the living Bible are two paraphrased versions of the Bible. And they get a lot of slack for being paraphrased versions of the Bible. How many of you have ever heard people talk bad about the message in the living Bible? I have. People are like, why are you reading that? It's paraphrased. It's not the word of God. They're like, well... Still, it's a translation. It's still really good. The message, uh, a, a dude named Eugene Peterson and his board of translators actually looked at the Greek, actually looked at the Hebrew, and took sentences. And that's what I really mean by phrases. Whole phrases, and then translated them into English in ways that you and I would say them today. <clears throat> and so it, there's no these and thous. It's, it's language that is very 2007-ish, very hip. And so you can even get the message in like cool covers like a leopard skin cover and just coolness. I mean, coolness just spews out of the message. And if I was you and I was just reading the Bible, just like if you're reading the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and if you're just reading it for fun, like which I, I highly encourage you to do, I would read it in the message. I have read it in the message. It reads like a novel. If you ever listen to the Bible on tape, um, how many of you have ever done that? Tape to CD? Wow, a lot of you. I'm impressed. You guys are the middle Sunday school. Um, the me- the message, if you're going to go out to the Christian bookstore and spend, it's like 150 bucks to get it on CD, I would buy the message version because it's the best version to just listen in big chunks and just to read like a novel. It's pretty cool. And so is it the Bible? Yeah, it's the Bible. Is it a paraphrase though? Yeah, it's a paraphrase, but you need to take that. You need to understand that the message is a paraphrase, but then just still realize that the message of truth is still there. I mean, that's where they get the name message. <laughs> the Living Bible, um, I don't like the Living Bible as much. You know why? Because the message, in comparison, the message, they actually looked at the Greek, the Hebrew, the Arabic to get their paraphrase. The Living, you know where they got it from? Yeah, the King James Version. So I could have translated the Living Version. You don't, you didn't, the, the, the writers of the Living Version didn't necessarily have to know Greek and Hebrew. They took the King James Version and they're flipping page by page saying, how can we make this very, very, very easy to understand? And that's how we get the living version of the Bible. All right, is everybody ready to talk about the King James? The King James Version of the Bible 
I don't like it for two reasons. One, two. Number one, it was written in the 1600s, and we don't talk like that anymore. Right? When's the last time you used thy or thou? Some of you are like, what? I said, I, just, yeah, I was going to use it in a sentence. I don't even know how to use it. Thy coffee? I don't even know how to say I mean, how do they use it? So that, that I mean, it's a, it's a personality thing. It's an opinion thing. I just don't like the King James Version because, uh, because it's hard to read. But if I'm arguing with someone, and it seems like I seem to just attract these kind of people in my life that, <laughs> that just want to argue all the time. Um, <laughs> never mind. <clears throat> um, people come up to me. It's, it's happened a couple times a year. I mean, I guess that's not that big of a deal. But they'll say, you know, are you you're one of the teachers of New Life Church? Well, here's why I don't go to New Life, because they don't teach the King James Version of the Bible. I'm like, that's your reason why? Um, they're like, yeah, well, you don't teach the King James Version. Your, your church is going to hell. I'm like, well, there's a lot of reasons to go to hell, and the King James Version is not a reason to go to hell in my book. <clears throat> um, and so, and so I, I might use this argument and say, well, it's really hard to read. And they might just say, suck it up. It's the real version. And so my real problem with the KJV is that it was written in the 1600s. And we didn't have a lot of the manuscripts that we have now in 2007. So to go back to the, just this random random example that I just randomly opened up to about the house of Jacob, we have manuscripts now that date back earlier than the manuscripts they had in the 1600s because we've been going hog wild with um, archaeology and finding sweet manuscripts. I mean, like, oh my gosh, well, this is amazing. This is another manuscript. Let's put those notes into the Bible. And so we have things like this. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 28, 29. You're about to get really confused. It'll be fun, though. Acts 28, 29. You're about to say, I can't find it. Acts 28, 29. <clears throat> look, look it up on the board. On the board, we put up the verses. Acts 28, 29. Then it has the number. <clears throat> Let's read the verse together. <laughs> There's nothing there. In the NIV... Um, in the NIV, it is not there, and it has a note next to it that says, some manuscripts say, listen, after this, the Jews left arguing vigorously, vigorously among themselves. We do not have verse 29 in our NIV Bible because we have found that almost all of the other earlier manuscripts do not have this verse. So as the NIV, we took it out, but we still put it in the Bible. It's in the little notes, but we took it out because the manuscripts, just the evidence for the manuscripts of what was originally there, the original text, we can't find it in the earliest examples. We find it in the later ones, the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, but we don't see it in the early versions of the manuscripts that we have. Does anyone have the King James Version of the Bible? It's in there, isn't it? You could find it. You're like, what's so funny? It's right there. And so the King James Version is an older version. It was written in the 1600s, much before some of these manuscripts came out. And so is it a big deal? No, that's not really a big deal that, that a little verse is missing out of the NIV. It is kind of cool, though, don't you think? It's like, whoa, where is it? I'm going to use that in Bible study sometime. Can you turn your Bibles to Acts 28, 29, and just start giggling to yourself because it's not there? That's the kind of thing I would do for fun. <clears throat> Torture people. 
I love torturing people. And so, um, do you see it? Are you really confused? Is this the first time? For some of you, I know this is the first time you've looked at the Bible cr critically. And I know that I went through, um, I kind of had a mean professor when I was in seminary <laughs> that really liked, I guess it's kind of like myself, he liked to torture people and um, confuse people. And so he would show us things like this and then make fun of us. And we would, I would go home and cry. Because I was honestly, in, in all seriousness, I was very confused about that my perceptions of the Bible were changing. And I had to realize, whoa, the Bible is not this book that's been directly handed down in the English King James to someone. And someone was like, oh, and they like grabbed the Bible. And then we have it. That's not how we got it. We got it from real people like you and me um, hearing from God that God somehow inspired and chose those people to write down his message. And that message got passed on. And so if you're still, if you're in the boat of like, wow, this is totally new to me. This is confusing. Um, come next week. Next week's the last um, uh, installment of Bible conundrums. We're going to cover up some stuff. I didn't get to one of my favorite things to talk about, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's your homework. You can handle it. Look up the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and you'll find that it's the unforgivable sin. But your homework would be to, to decide what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All right, it's story time real quick. You've probably heard this. You might have just heard it really recently because it's kind of about graduation, and it's, it's a really cool story, but it's about the Bible too. Here we go. A young man was getting ready to graduate. For many months, he admired a beautiful sports car in a dealership showroom, and knowing his father could well afford it, he told them he told him that he wanted that sports car. On graduation day, as graduation day approached, the young man awaited signs that his father had purchased the car. Finally, on the morning of his graduation, his father called him into his private study. The father told him how proud he was to have such a fine son and told him how much he loved him. He handed the son a beautifully wrapped gift box. Curiously, but somewhat disappointed, the young man opened the box and found a lovely leather-bound Bible, maybe like mine. Angrily, though, he raised his voice against his father and said, with all the money you give, you give me some book, a Bible? Then he stormed out of the house, leaving the Holy Bible back with his father. Many years passed, and the young man was very successful in business. He had a beautiful home, wonderful family, but realized that his father was very old and perhaps that he should go visit him. He had not seen him since that graduation day. Before he could make arrangements, he received a telegram telling him that his father had passed away and willed all of his possessions to his son. He needed to come home immediately and take care of things. When he arrived at his father's house, sudden sadness and regret filled his heart. He began to search his father's um, study for important papers and saw the Bible still new, just as it had been left many years ago. With tears, he opened the Bible, began to turn the pages. As he read those words, the, the car, car key dropped from an envelope taped behind the Bible. It had a dealer. It had a tag with the dealer's name, the same dealer who had the sports car that he desired. On the tag was the date of his graduation and the words, paid in full. Let's pray. God, we just, we realize that there is treasure in this book called the Bible. God, would you inspire us? Would you encourage us? Would you just let us have your will in reading your word to us? God, as Christians, we say without a doubt that this book is the best way that we have 
to know who you are. God, would you give us your truth in this book? Would you encourage us to read it? Would you bring it alive to us and show us the treasures that are in this book? And we just love you, God. We thank you that you gave us the word of God as in the Bible. We love you and we thank you. And everyone said, amen.